Hey everybody, welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King, and you're listening to the Photography Podcast dedicated to getting you out there on an adventure of your own. I know that all of you have full-time jobs, full-time families, but you bought that camera for a reason. So pack your gear, grab your camera, get out there, get a flat tire. It's time for a Photog Adventure of your own. It's episode 162, and in this episode, despite not having a co-host... For something like this, this is something I was saving for a day to have a co-host, but I want to talk about it now because I experienced the range of this my last week out there in the Upper Peninsula area of Michigan. And so I want to talk about and maybe a little bit wax poetic and pensive and, you know, have some deep thoughts about photographers and skies. All of us have this love-hate relationship depending on the moment. I mean, I titled this podcast, The Opposites We Pray For, and it makes me think about an old tale that I heard. I don't know which nation, which tribe, which group did this. I believe it is Tongan, but I have to double-check to know if this is a true story in all of those Polynesian cultures or if it was just uniquely um, a story to these Tongan people that I heard the story third-hand. You know, I heard the story through someone else who heard the story. But the story goes that as they were heading out sailing from their island to another island, they thought about praying. Religious Christian people wanting to pray to have God help them with great wind so they make it there. And these LDS, Church of Jesus Christ, I say missionaries that were out there with this group are thinking, yeah, let's pray for the great, great you know, wind that's going to get us there behind our sails and take us fast and safely. And they noticed that those of the Tongan culture, they were praying for the wind they need, praying for a great wind, praying for basically no specifics about the direction, the amount, just that their wind that they get would be what they would need to make it. And it was asked later, it's like, hey, why didn't you ask for a good tailwind, you know, a good forceful wind that would get us there quickly? And he goes, oh, no, no. See, we're not the only ones on this ocean going between islands. And if we pray for a wind to go our direction, it's going to be wind going the opposite direction for other sailors. And so we never do that. And the principle of if you ask for wind to go one direction, it's that way for everyone. If you pray for it, you're basically going to cause some people grief and some people a blessing. So going away from the Christian analogy here and going towards our skies, it makes me think a lot about Aaron King driving to the south for a workshop with Milky Way photographers. I'm heading to Moab. I'm going to meet up with them and do a whole southern Utah workshop. As I see clouds in the sky, I'm like, no, no, no. No, oh, stay away, clouds. That's getting too thick over there. Oh, man, I hope those just kind of disappear as the temperature changes. Please don't stay, clouds. But you know what? There's other people probably arriving in Moab in that area who don't know or realize that this is a good night without the moon. It's great for astrophotography. They're thinking about their Mesa Arch sunrise. They're thinking about their Canyonland sunrise, arches, sunsets, and beautiful colors. Because as landscape photographers, we're all keenly aware a sunset without clouds is boring. 
Even though you get a gradient of color, you feel disappointed. Every one of us will admit that we feel disappointed to some degree, some greater than others. You just want some interest in the sky. You want a canvas of clouds that get painted with the colors of the sunset. And sometimes you have a sunset that's really great in color, but unless it kind of reflects off of the clouds above a local area, you won't get that glow and interest in your local foreground. Because you've probably been out there, you've done landscape photography with the direct sunlight sun bearing down on you, and you'll see that your bush and your rock is nice, but it's a little harsh light. You're waiting for softer light. You want the highlights and the low lights and you know contrasty shadows, but when the sun was out, it was worse than when it got a little behind the horizon. But then if it's all dark and shadowy and going towards blue hour, you miss out on something interesting. But if you've been in the Utah deserts and you've had a cloud above you get the nice pink-red color that happens from the sunrise, that the sun set out in the distance or sunrise, that is actually still lighting those clouds but not where you are standing, you've seen that glow, that amazing glow that enriches your image with color and saturation that sometimes you, you want to pull back. It's so saturated in color. So we've all had those experiences. Yes, you could arrive and pray for clouds, beautiful clouds, to make an interesting landscape shot. Or you could be Aaron King arriving to pray for zero clouds, zero moisture in the air, complete zero interest because it's time for the sky at night to shine. And so we have these opposites that we have as photographers, especially Milky Way photographers. Every single one of us who've done Milky Way, if you are one of those rare unicorns, which I bet don't exist, that did only Milky Way and have never done landscape, let me know. Because I'm pretty positive, as all the one, 100% of the people I know, myself included, who have done, who do Milky Way photography, have done landscape photography. It's basically an interest that transitions to a different interest. It doesn't go one or the other, it's always hand in hand. So we've experienced that feeling. Oh, the opposite here. This is going to be a great landscape, but man, it sucks for Milky Way. Or it's getting too bad for landscape, but it's going to be great for Milky Way. I wonder where the moon is. We've had those thoughts. So as I go into this episode, I'm going to try and keep it short and just talk about a few things that have been on my mind as I make these long drives and think about the skies, the skies that I want, the skies that I'm begging for, and some of the unique elements of what it is that interests us. It's interesting. And so in short, let me give you a summary of what's coming and then I'll take these one at a time, landscape and astro. So it's landscape versus astro and clouds and landscape. I just put on a fake percentage point of how many clouds we really want versus astros, no clouds. And then there's light. In landscape, we want light, but we want it uniquely limited light, not just complete free-flowing light. In, land, in astro, we want no light, and yet we have our most giant aperture on our lens to get as much light as possible because we're looking for that distant light. Then the comparison of foreground. When you're doing foreground for landscape, two-thirds of your landscape or two-thirds of your frame are on average the landscape with one-third being the sky accenting all of the cool features in your landscape. Unless your sky is amazing and it's taking up 50% or even two-thirds of your sky. It really requires certain conditions to have more than you know most, most space, most real estate on your frame given to your landscape. 
than the Astro version is the foreground's almost uniquely one-third universally. I mean, I shouldn't say uniquely. It's just universally one-third is your foreground, and the rest is given to that Milky Way. And so in landscape versus astro, foreground has an opposite amount of space given interest to it, and yet both of them require a foreground. Last, I'm going to talk about the weather temperature flux that makes some great landscape photography versus what we want cold. And I do this to end it so that at the end of the podcast, I can encourage all of you who are thinking, well, the Milky Way core is gone. I'm out of here. Well, with the cold, you're going to get clarity that you never got in your summertime shots of the Milky Way. Yes, there won't be a core, but there will be a clarity in the sky that everyone on the Upper Peninsula Workshop, just barely, were raving about. And it made my heart hurt a little bit because I'm like, oh, no, you should be saying Utah is so much better than Michigan. Don't come to Michigan for great skies. Well, the reality is, is that anywhere with low light pollution that's cold will have a better, clearer sky. Which is, you know, by virtue of the hot elevation at Crater Lake and the temperature typically, even in June, we get a better clarity, a better clarity on the Milky Way core than we get when we're in the southern Utah desert of, you know, Escalante area. So now those are the topics I'm going to go over, and then I'm going to take them and approach them one by one and carry us through this hangout here. I, I wish I had a few other photographers to wax poetic with and to get their thoughts, but I can go and hit them up with this in another segment in the future. For right now, it's Friday. It's 1.27 p.m. I'm working on my secret project, and I need a break from it, so I just wanted to talk photography. So now let's take it slowly. Let's talk Landscape versus astro, referring to clouds. I've already mentioned the most of the points there, where it's like, no, no clouds. I want zero clouds at all. If any of you are saying, I'm okay with clouds, what you're saying is that you are okay with clouds. But very few people, and I could probably say zero, I don't know of anyone who's ever come to me and said, oh man, if there's zero clouds, I hate it. I want some clouds. Now, Milky Way and the stars, you want them being your interest. You don't want a single cloud dotting your sky. But of course, we've all dealt with some clouds, many clouds, and it isn't terrible. It isn't terrible that there's some clouds. It doesn't ruin your night always. It can. (laughs) Oh, man, it can. Let's just tell this quick anecdote. Um, You probably have all experienced where you've gone out for a Milky Way and you've seen a sky that's like 10% covered in clouds. But the 10% that's covered in clouds is the one with the core. And you're like, come on. Over there by the Big Dipper, I don't care. I don't don't want to see the Big Dipper right now. It's cool. But put those 10% clouds over there, please. Why? Why are you hanging on the core? And it happens. Every time it happens, it feels like it happens all the time. You know, it happens once out of 30, but when it happens, you're like, come on, that happens all the time. And you get angry and frustrated. Well, this one trip, and I mentioned it in passing before, Mary Beth, myself, and Milky Way Mike, we were hanging out at Dance Hall Rock, and for the first time ever, not only was the core blocked by the only clouds in the sky, but the entire band of the Milky Way was blocked with the thin layer of clouds. And painfully the rest of this sky the entirety of the sky i'm not kidding everywhere else i looked stars were visible not a cloud but there's this crazy lagging tail of the sunset clouds that were interesting at sunset that were just lining up perfectly for that hours 
precise location of the entire band of Milky Way from Cassiopeia all the way over to the core. It was so frustrating and funny. Once we got over the frustration of it and they were laughing about it, and I decided, oh, I could laugh about it too. We started taking pictures of it as evidence. Over on the guild, Milky Way Mike shared the picture, and you could see his final where it has the Milky Way above those cloud band, but you can see that thin stripe that is there underneath it. So if you're in the Milky Way Photographer's Guild, you'll see that picture with Milky Way Mike. He's got an awesome picture for it. So, this brought to you by MilkyWayPhotographersGuild.com, where you can be free to talk Milky Way without ads and without Facebook junk. So, yeah, that's not a real ad, but I figured I might as well throw it in there. Go to MilkyWayPhotographers.com, MilkyWayPhotographers.com, and MilkyWayPhotographersGuild.com. Okay, enough of that. So, clouds, we know. Any amount of them is a pain to Astro, but for landscape, we want them. But we don't want all of them. How many of you have been in a situation where... Oh my gosh, those clouds are covering horizon to horizon. There's no gap for light. There's no sunset. You try. You wait. You see. Will it happen? No, I don't know. It's so covered. In Upper Peninsula, since I haven't shared all these stories yet, I might as well share a few more. Our first night we got there driving in after a long night, we did a quick Milky Way shot. Then we did a cool Milky Way shot over Kathy's Jeep. And we enjoyed our night seeing, oh, this is a pretty good sky. This is great. We just can't see the Milky Way core since it's this time of year, plus the tree line, blah, 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 blah. No aurora was happening, so we called it early and went and had some pizza. The next morning, though, we wanted to do something. We wanted to get out there and do something. But we had just driven, so we thought, okay, no. No sunrise, sleep in, enjoy your sleep. We'll get together around blah, blah, blah time. After a rainy day, the second day, that day we slept in for our first day together, we after that all being rained out, we decided we're definitely going for sunrise, but the clouds are looking kind of full. So let's just see how it goes. We wake up at 5.30, we get everyone together at 6 a.m., and here we are, out in a dark location, looking out over what is supposed to be Lake Superior, but we could barely tell what we're looking at for the most part, and then it gets brighter and brighter, and as it gets brighter, we see... That it's clouds from horizon to horizon. We can't see anything but clouds. So now the eternal optimists are playing around with, okay, this is a cool rock, and there's like flat lighting. Let's go for it. Ooh, yeah, nice. And, oh, this rock with that motion of water with the flat lighting. Ooh, yeah, yeah, that's looking good. You know, they're trying to squeeze as much as they possibly can out of nothing. We're doing landscape now, not Milky Way. If it was Milky Way, anything Astro, we'd be done. We're not trying to squeeze anything out of it. We're like, eh, boom, that sky's full. Go to a movie. All right, awesome. <sighs> For landscape, though, you can't leave. You shouldn't. And if you do, you're going to end up like Brendan, myself, and uh, and Dan when we left uh, the Wedge Overlook after Brendan lost his drone. We left early. And we thought, ah, there's no chance. That sun, look at us, totally blocked. It's over. And then it, just enough movement happened and the sun came out. Oh, what a waste. So you can't ever leave on landscape. There, Shane has his girlfriend from Russia, who's Anastasia. Okay, I want to say this right. Anastasia. It's the accent on the Sia. Anastasia. It's nice to see you. It's nice to see you, Anastasia. That's what I was always telling myself to remember it. So Anastasia and I were the only one talking because everyone's doing their own photography optimism. I called this the Optimist Playground this week because it seemed like that's what it was. It was the Optimist Playground. It's like only an optimist could have any fun there. So they were all joking around with this and that and trying to get their shots and moving to different positions. And I'm just trying to stay warm, hang out with Cheryl and Anastasia. 
and she's looking out at the sky, and I think she asked me because she had a GoPro and she was recording some video, and I told her, I said, oh my gosh, look at the sky. The sky right now, when you look at the shelf of clouds, they're shaped and level in a way that if the sun does kiss one of them, it's going to kiss miles back. You're going to have a kiss of light going all the way this way and that way. So this could be terrific if we could just get that gap. I'm looking in photo pills. I'm looking in the AR module. I'm like, okay, the sun goes, oh, the sun goes over the left of that gap. Why is the gap so far to the right? Okay, where's the cloud moving to? Is it moving from north to south? Okay, oh, it's moving the gap. Oh. So unfortunately, the gap that we had right at sunrise horizon was moving more off to the south from it and pulling away from where the sun was going to be. So I declared it a possible miss that it's just probably not going to work out. But I emphasized if it does sneak out, though, it could be really glorious. And as we're sitting there, we're moving people around. People are going different positions, trying different intimate shots with rocks and landscape because at least that's interesting. I see a little color, and I start running. I start running around like a light, like a like a lighthouse, like a wooga. Well, I guess a wooga, wooga is more of a ship only, right? I mean, it's just these warning bells, alarms, alarm, alarm, color, color, color. Everyone look, it's color, color. Go, go, go. And so we're we're starting to like, okay, switch lenses back to the lens I had was wide, or I want to go long this time. Everyone's switching back to what they wanted to be. Now they're facing the sunlight, trying to bring in what was happening. And just like I said, that sun came out just enough and it lit miles, miles of clouds. It wasn't something that was far reaching frame to frame. You had to crop in with the zoom if you wanted to make it frame to frame colorful. But right down the pipe, right down the center, it had a wing, an angel wing of light that was happening off of the sun's center position. And you could have it spread in a nice cool angle in the water as it reflected. And then above in the sky, you had orange stretching from, you know, bottom to top of your frame. So with just the right crop and the right composition, you can make something really neat, have a kiss of that orange color reflecting in the water, maybe in the highlight of your tree branch or, or uh, you know, the debris that comes from a lake, typical, um, what do they call it? I'm thinking of the wrong word right now, a driftwood, driftwood and different rocks. And so they're trying to make the most of it. And man, that color came out, it spiked, and it started pulling away as the sun moved continually up and then pushed the sunlight above the clouds instead of through them. But it happened. I mean, that percentage of cloud cover was probably 90% plus, and it found a way. So you can't give up in landscape with clouds, you got to painfully stay there and Day and don't leave and don't think about breakfast. Don't think about going to that movie. Just stay and make it happen. Milky Way, it's cloudy like that. You can look at it and go, okay, we got to stake it out. We got hours to see if these clouds move and give us something, but you can keep checking in once an hour. Sunsets, you got to stay for 25 minutes plus an hour just to make sure you see everything before and after that could or may happen. You know, it, it is a whole different world when we're fighting those opposites. Clear skies versus clouds, at least some. 
And so I put down here clouds 40% to 80%. Um, if it's less than 40%, it's probably still great. I should probably say something like 10%. But when you have too few clouds that aren't really getting anything interesting, or if you have too many clouds and it's blocking the sunlight from coloring anything, then that sucks. Or if you get a crazy storm system or a crazy set of clouds that they're all being lit at different times. You can do a time blend, like Elio Locardi style, and blend them together. But sometimes in the desert, it looks really weird. I, I tried it years ago in a terrible situation where I had the starburst of the sun on the horizon and then the post-sunset colors everywhere and then some clouds above me that were yellow but clouds that were orangish-pink for the actual post-sunset color. So the post-sunset, let's just go in order. Pre-sunset, there were some yellow clouds getting some cool coloring that was around me that I liked. Um, just at sunset, I got a starburst of the sun. Post-sunset, about 10, 20 minutes after, I got some great color. And so I had this shot from Zion looking over the canyon overlook. And when I blended those together, they were an amalgam of crap. It was just, okay, that looks weird. Why do you have a starburst and a post-sunset coloring? And why is this cloud over here and those clouds so bright yellow and awesome looking? It was one or the other. They all could be yellow with the starburst. Or there's no starburst, no yellow, and just the pink. And I had to settle on just the pink and ended up doing a car light trail of the cars moving through that S-curvy, windy, um, back-and-forth switchback path that goes up to the tunnel in, Z in Zion. So that worked in the end, but combining the other time periods, absolutely not. And so when you have a sunset where the clouds are getting hit at different times, you may be able to blend them together if it looks natural, but for the most part, it often looks weirder, especially since you get an interesting color at sunset that's completely different than the earlier, you know, 10, 20 minutes ago, yellowish golden. And so you got to choose that. So clouds, man, they can be anywhere within up to 80%, but you don't want them covering too much unless you get a miracle opening like we did the sunrise. And that sunrise is fleeting, bleeding. This isn't part of the discussion, but man, when you deal with Milky Way versus a fleeting sunset, oh, it's so much easier. Not only do you know exactly where it's going to be, but as long as the clouds move, you can trust it to be there for hours. You can get your shot. Unless you're racing a panorama window before the Milky Way core angles too vertical and you can't get a great panorama without a major, major wide angle, you're really fine. You don't have to rush Milky Way, but you got to rush sunsets, which is why... It's so great to do Milky Way. So we talked about the clouds and the skies that make clouds better. Well, they kind of fit in. Well, they definitely fit into this next part about the light. Oh, the light. It's so interesting how 100% light, boring, any other percentage of light being limited in some way, we love. What do I mean? Think of this in landscape. How many shots do you have that are of a tunnel of light? rays coming down breaking through clouds gone into a canopy of a forest and have just a light ray come through one or a vast array of lights coming through the lead canopy yeah yeah me too have you ever had something where the sunrise light is just highlighting the subject of the village the city the rock and it looks amazing because it's spotlighting everything else is getting blocked by something and it makes it stand out how, I mean, <laughs> how many million versions of Antelope Canyon are there where they're cool 
because of the shafts of light. They've been limited in some way and become interesting. It's crazy to think that a tree tunnel with light peering through there, you know, out in Ireland is amazing. But then you go in, you film a normal street with regular light, and you're like, mm, yeah, that's kind of boring. So it's like if we can get it limited in just the right way, we love the light. In the Faroe Islands, one of the biggest benefits of the Faroe Islands is the clouds that move so quickly. You end up with shafts of light on a moment's notice. It's like, well, boom, okay, watch. And then you just kind of stay in one position long enough, and you'll get an eventual shaft of light. And my one of my favorites is when that shaft of light is on like a dark section of water where all the shadowy clouds are causing dark, dark contrast with the light beam that's hitting and just bringing a shimmer of light reflecting at almost overexposed levels of light. It's so cool, that shaft. And then when that shaft hits a village, a sleepy village against a green hill, <laughs> absolutely adore it. And so we've all been there with our versions of the light. It's cool if it gets limited in some way, not just 100%. Sunsets are better when the clouds cause extra light rays and stuff. Storm, people who are chasing storms is that that limited of light, the way that we start putting things in front of it that get the color and the orange and the gray, that contrast is amazing. A plain, boring blue sky, you're like, eh, meh. And so it's interesting how much life-giving, life-breathing, life needs light. And yet if we could just take it out and cut it out, it's amazing. If you get to see a tunnel, a light, or you can go into a very contrasty area where light just sort of hits the right subjects. It's just, it's interesting how attracted we are to limiting something. If it's limited a little bit, it's spectacular. In natural photography, it doesn't have a similar situation, but what happens is we don't want any light. We're complete. Nazis about no light in our image. We don't want light pollution. Go somewhere better. Get a light pollution filter. Try and block it. I don't know if they work because I don't go places like that. I am an elitist. I go to completely dark skies and capture the night sky without any of that light pollution stuff that mess with my image. We don't want someone's headlamp coming on. You ruined my shot. You get another headlamp that goes red. I will break your headlamp. <laughs> you are ruining my shot. You know, as we found in the last group, we had some red lamp fights broke out. We ended up putting everyone in a circle, tripods only, stripped to the waist, and we fought until the red headlamps were all killed. Uh, no, we didn't, but man, at one, one night we really wish we had killed all head, red headlamps. You know who you are, <laughs> and you know that we love you. You don't care, but uh, you can ruin a shot with light at night, and you wanted to not have any light, and yet, you know, not ironically really, but we want to get as much distant light as possible. We have the widest open, most open aperture as we can get. Why? Because we want to let all the light in. <laughs> it's like, okay, we don't want light locally, not on Earth, but we want light off of Earth to shine like crazy. And of course, that is the goal. Make that Milky Way show up as much as you possibly can. And then when you think about it, when you think about Milky Way photography, what is better. Let me say it this way. Imagine your very first ever Milky Way shot. Most of you, very few of you will have it different than this experience. Camera, tripod, stable, nothing moving. Take a picture, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever you like, and there it is. That's your shot. Static, non-tracked Milky Way shot. That's the beginning. And then where does everyone go? Eventually, 
now, especially now that the tech is there and it's much cheaper than it used to be and it's incredible and everyone's there before even I am, star tracking. Well, what's the benefit of star tracking? Oh, well, they're pinpoint stars. Well, no, I can get pinpoint stars in eight seconds too. Okay, so it's not pinpoint stars. What is it? Well, you know, I can capture the Milky Way. So can I. I can capture the stars. So can I. What's the difference? What's the only difference in a star track shot versus my shot? Well, I can make sure my foreground gets blurry, and then I have to blend two versions together, and I have all that extra work in post-processing. Well, that's not a benefit of star tracking, so why is it worth going the extra mile with all the extra post-processing and the extra foreground capture to blend? Well, why is it worth it to do star tracking? Because of the shutter. You have light that you're seeing just barely. And then you capture for a minute and a half, two minutes, four minutes, and oh my gosh, what happened? Light. Lots more light. So much more light that now the places that are dark, low contrast areas, they're visible. Because now you're seeing the contrast between where the light's coming through and then those holes are being left behind and it's like... Wow, okay, I knew the dust lanes on the core were interesting, but now on a Star Trek image, they're not only there and more visible, but they stretch so much more than I even realized. For instance, if you look at, say, let's just use Kirk Kaisen, uh, I think Mary Beth would be a good example. If you've ever met both of them, look at Mary Beth's calf. You'll see her leg, nice skinny leg, looks strong, looks great. Then you see Kirk Kai's calf, and it is muscular, gigantic. He could hold a, a horse and a car with those two giant calves. Um, there is a huge difference in girth on the Milky Way around a Star Trek shot versus a simple static eight-second shot like I do. And so, yeah, you realize that, and you see all that you're missing without what? Longer shutter. Longer shutter equals more light. And the other benefit of more light is what? Color incredible color so where we go in landscape photography we want the light limited to nothing to see some cool stuff and we want this big harsh light being ramped down with some features and interests we go to astrophotography we want that harsh light completely out of the way the moon your reflected light rejected we don't want your moon we want nothing in the sky so those distant dimples and dots of just simple light is going to come through with a longer shutter, longer, longer, longer shutter. And then the night sky is on fire with the reality of space and the cosmos around us. And it's amazing. It, it, you all experienced it most likely, so you know what I'm talking about. First time you saw it in the back of your LCD screen to the first time you post-processed it and share with your friends to just the next time you go out and you stand underneath it and you go, oh. Wow, I feel kind of at home. Look at the cosmos. We are star stuff. We are star stuff. We are, And you wax poetic and get pensive about life and about where you come from and all that. There's that we want no light to interfere with the light that we want to see. It's a very choosy, very selective light that we want in both disciplines. So next, foreground. Foreground in landscape photography is most of your image. I mean, it's wrapping up on the sides of your frame, and then the sky is this complement. It's the butter on the toast. You just have to get something that makes it look great. Also, the same exact composition with multiple different light, uh, light colors, light um, 
light intensities, it changes everything. Different angles of light changes everything. It's incredible. I mean, you've seen it yourself. You capture something in the middle of the day, then you capture it at sunset, and it's like, wow, oh, man. Easy to pick your favorite, and it's always the one with that limited, oblique angle of light that just casts that warm glow across all your subject. But when that light was straight above us, it was boring. It's just kind of there. I see it. It's harsh. But when it gets down and soft and warm and the colors are enhanced and completely changed, frankly, of the terrain around you, it becomes amazing. And it's got this crazy thing that when the light shoots through our atmosphere at that oblique angle, as we have atmosphere bending and focal blending, like focal bending, like it's a almost a little bit mirroring. What do they call it? It's a, I can't think of the term right now, but basically as it refracts through the atmosphere at that angle versus coming straight down, so much has changed. And even though it's a universal thing that happens every night, it's different enough that we aren't bored of it. We are bored of the basic light that happens every day. But once it starts having a little bit of a difference, it becomes amazing. And our foreground has a complete makeover that happens with that light. So the same, the same tangent almost of limited light because of a cloud cover that's there and not completely open, the limited unique light that happens at certain times that makes our foreground look like it's wearing its Sunday's best now because, oh my gosh, this place looks amazing all of a sudden. It's all that unique thing where we limit it, we we change it, and now it's beautiful to us. The grass is greener on the other side, principle almost. You look at something and everyone gets in the middle of the day, meh. But if you stay around for the magic that happens before and after sunrise and before and after sunset, you see a completely different world. And specifically with foregrounds taking up the space of your frame, it's all over your frame. Your composition is based on your foreground. You get to Astro, man, it's that sky. How can I make that cool Milky Way core and all these other stars? Or if I'm in the southern hemisphere, the Magellanic clouds, how do I make them look awesome with this foreground? I need this rock, this tower, this cool man-made subject, this open vista, this canyon, this through the canyon, this through the walls up here. And almost 50-50 maybe is a safe way to put it for the foreground can take up more than one-third, but for the most part, you're capturing one-third of your foreground, and then the rest is all sky, focused on sky. Whereas in the night, in the daytime sky, you have negative space, but in the night, Milky Way nighttime sky, there's almost no negative space because there's stars everywhere. The negative space around the core, outside of the core on the edges, and away from interesting subjects like planets. Um, if you're seeing the Magellanic Clouds, those things are your those stars around that are your negative space and it's quite limited how much negative space there is so you can take up a ton of your compositional framing just for the sky alone so as we're looking for the sky to open up to us we want zero clouds so that we can have all that space to play with and move things around and make things work before i end the foreground discussion i want to talk about the lighting and sky transitions in foreground captures. And I'm going to make this quick because I already see that I'm close to my 30 minutes already. You have a foreground in daytime when you capture it with the sun, and it's all kind of all together. You blend it, you don't move your tripod, boom. 
In Astro, we have the same thing where we don't move our tripod and we blend it, but sometimes you want to see your foreground more than that silhouette. Uh, last week, I, or actually just a couple days ago, I shared my shot of the lighthouse with, at, with you know, Orion Constellation with or without a Tiffin fog filter. It was not a brilliant image by any means. It was just a quick test image. But as you can see, the lighthouse, it could have benefited from a longer exposure to actually see the lighthouse plus the stars. And sometimes there's a compromise that works where one exposure works for both. But a lot of the times you end up with a large enough location that doesn't have as much reflective light on it and you really have to go for a long exposure to see it. When I think about long exposure foregrounds, there's two tips that I want to give you. If your subject, well, let's just say the two tips and we'll go in and describe that part. One, make sure that your sky transition point to your foreground looks natural. And we'll talk about how we do that. And two, make sure your foreground is large enough and vast enough. Well, that's kind of part of one. Let's add this into one still. Make sure your foreground is vast enough that the transition can have time to do it. And I'll explain that more in a second. The second one is that pay attention to what's reflective and bright in your foreground. And if you can, make it work on an exposure that's compromised. Combine the sky and the foreground in a compromised exposure. How do I mean that? Well, my typical sky shot is 8 seconds, 8,000 ISO on my Rokinon 24mm. That's a great sky exposure for the Milky Way core specifically. When I did the Orion shot of the sky, I did the same settings just to keep it simple, but it was only based off of making sure my core looks good. Well, in this situation with Orion and the stars, outside of a you know, stretching of the stars a little bit, I was okay with playing with different settings and I didn't play with it. So what if with that really close white lighthouse, I chose a setting that exposed it better but then also stretch the night sky a little bit brighter, but it wouldn't have ruined it. I had no core to blow out. I only had stars. I wasn't trying to get detail out of Orion Nebula, which is crazy bright subject. And so realistically, since I was going to do a blurred out Tiffin fog filter shot anyway, if there was a little shutter oblong stretch to my stars because I went 20, 30 seconds, that wouldn't have been the worst. And just doing that with my foreground would have been okay. So when you're thinking about blending, see if you can compromise and get it all in one anyway. Give a little bit on your sky to give more to your foreground and vice versa. So of the two tips, it is really one tip. And the tip is basically have the space to transition to the night sky. And I guess the solve for this, if you don't have enough space, is to do what I could add as a second tip, which is prepare your sky to be more of a blue transition than a dark transition. I'll make sense of this in a future podcast, but I'm going to say it shortly here. You capture a night sky at eight seconds. It's a dark black, brown, maroon, bluish sky, however you white balance it to a dark foreground that's in front of you. Then I capture a one minute foreground, and now that foreground's really bright, and the transition to the sky is a bright for horizon. It's a bright horizon. So if I've got white colors on my horizon, but in my sky I've got dark black colors on my horizon, when I bring them together, that is like a checkerboard and is obviously hitting a border and a boundary and it looks weird. 
So you have two options. I either make sure that my foreground is darker on that horizon. I I completely burn it back and make sure it's dark and has a transition into the dark sky. Or I make my horizon and my sky a little bit brighter and I bring in that brighter horizon up into a brighter sky and then boom. I won't mention any names, but there's photographers out there that you see their blue hour Milky Way shots. And what is universally true about them is that for the most, I'll just say for the most part and not universally true. For the most part, you are going to see a brighter, bluer sky with their Milky Way. And that's because they want to transition to that cool foreground subject without that abrupt boundary between dark and bright. So if you say a blue hour shot of a mono lake feature that's really close to the camera, interesting spires reaching up into the sky, you're going to get a bunch of weird shapes of dark um, sky around your bright spires and it'll look odd and out of place. In my Milky Way of Canyonlands, up from that vista on Grandview Point, I had enough of a vast distance to work with that when those get a little bit darker on that flat horizon and then transition to a dark sky, it works fine. There's no challenge. There's only a few ugly spots if you pixel peep and I can fix those. When it comes to features that overlap the sky, like a mono lake feature, an Escalante, a Bryce Canyon, you're going to be dealing with a weirdness that is almost only fixed by having a blue hour shot of the ground and a longer exposure of the sky, a faked horizon brightness that transitions to a truly dark sky, but you're featuring almost one-third dark, and then the other third of the sky is just a transition point into the blue blue hour of your foreground. So when you're dealing with that one-third foreground and you're transitioning to an other exposure for the sky, just think about those things. I'll do a dedicated podcast on it. To simplify and summarize just real quick before I go, expose Try a shot that exposes a compromise for your sky and your foreground all in one shot if you can get away with it. If you have to do a longer exposure for the foreground and a short exposure for the sky, make sure you have a vast enough distance that you can work with. If things are really close to you, prepare yourself for doing a blue hour shot with a bluish sky transition point that is going to look natural in the end. So think about shots that you like that are kind of cool and you know they're blue hour shots. Look at them and you'll see, oh yeah, it's kind of white in the horizon or blue, very bright blue in the horizon into the night sky. And it looked natural when you first saw it, but now that you're thinking about it, you're like, oh yeah, I see what they did. They had a really bright blue blue hour foreground that they're blending into a dark dark sky so instead of making that dark sky a black sky it's a bluish sky now with the great milky way showing up and everything blends together artistically and looks fine and there's nothing wrong with that as long as they don't move their tripod otherwise it's a composition if it's a composite composite if you move your tripod it's a composite if you blend it keep your tripod in one place 100% on board of that in my book so astro versus landscape skies wanting them to be clear, wanting them to have clouds, fighting over each other, wanting light, but we want to uniquely limit that light in landscape, or we want no light whatsoever because we're going to really accent and bring out the distant light. Or the foreground is taking up much less of my foreground in Astro, but it's taking up a lot of space in my landscape. And then you got that weather temperature flux, cold, no thermal noise. transit. This, this is the last point, and this is to celebrate what we have right now for Astro guys like me. And then those of you who are landscape photographers, oh, that's a good opportunity. 
Let's explain the weather temp flux thing with only one example, and you can think of the other examples. When you have a, and I don't know the exact equation, but imagine if this was correct, uh, moisture temperature of a certain temperature, but then it drops. You can sometimes get an inversion, an inversion of clouds. And in Moab, in January, you can get an inversion of clouds that go into the canyon lands and fill your space all around what is Mesa Arch and Dead Horse Point and Grandview Point. And I am still painfully jealous of Jeff Peterson and his awesome image at Mesa Arch where he had the cloud inversion on that Monday morning that I was going to join him, but I'm like, nah, I'll wait for Kirk and Drew and Brendan. We'll all go together on Wednesday. What a mistake. Should have gone out there on Monday, Jeff. I still killed my, I kicked myself for not going. So these weather fluxes, these crazy transition points, if you have like a cool storm pattern coming through, great interest, awesome night skies. I'm sorry, night skies, awesome landscapes, guys. And if you have these transitions of a good weather to bad, you can be really interesting. It could be really great, exciting on the waves as the waves get crashing harder and you can maybe go out to... Uh, what is it up there above Bandon? It is Rockview Point. No, bum, ba, da, dum, bum. Oh, I'm forgetting it on the fly. Oh, anyway, oh well, that place near Coos Bay has a fantastic rock that you've seen Nick Page and Majid show it off. It's it looks fantastic. So those weather fluxes, that's this kind of stuff we almost really excited about, and we're going into a weather flux as it gets into winter and some bad weather. You can have some great landscape. Historically, it should be good in November, but every time we've gone on a listener adventure or a workshop, it's always been plenty boring and calm and great for night skies and not good for landscape in, on the Oregon coast. Don't know why. But then you look at Milky Way stuff. Yes, the core is gone. The core is gone, but the rest of the Milky Way band does show up. You will see Cassiopeia high in the sky instead of on the horizon. You have Andromeda Galaxy, really visible triangulum, all the Messier objects. You have great constellations. If you get a Tiffin Fog filter like I was talking about a few days ago, you will love all the constellations, star trails, deep sky. There's just so much activity, and the best kind of conditions that we can get for that is when the sky is clear, and cold really helps. Not only does cold help, but sorry, Southern Hemisphere, we're moving into our longer nights in the Northern Hemisphere, so it's great right now for that. Southern Hemisphere, they're just glad that it's summer coming up, and we've got vaccines coming, and they're just going to be glad to have a summer. Hopefully, hopefully, so they don't care that we get longer nights. They've had longer nights with the Milky Way core, and after their six, seven hours of panoramas, they're not jealous of us. But we, we are going to have dark skies longer. If the weather will allow, you're going to have a great opportunity to get out there and capture. So do not miss an opportunity to do it and try it. Uh, I'll have to bring on Rob Bryan and talk about his his attempts at Simple, static, not tracked, deep sky, and how well they have gone for him. Because he, we have a lot to learn from his experience doing that. And Sean Maloney, like I said, with Red Stick Astro, we're going to talk a lot about narrowband and stuff like that. If you have the money, oh, it's an answer. Lastly, the cold. There's no thermal noise. You've experienced it in the summer where you can go to certain hot places where all of a sudden your image looks like crap in night sky photography. And this dark, dark cold cold time you can go forever and as long as you don't have condensation on your lens and if you're out in the desert like me then you can really benefit from the cold so it's great opportunity to get out there i wanted to emphasize that before this was over but i just wanted to stock wanted to talk about skies i mean we 
fight for skies, and yet we want that limited sky. Oh, the clouds are all over except for that spike of light. That's awesome. Why? I mean, why not have a big, beautiful open sky? Well, no, that's awesome because it has that limited, cool, rare, fleeting moment that you got to see, and if you're lucky, capture. Today I saw Cheryl's image of the barn that had the light behind it and with the clouds that were overhead creating the what just post rain kind of storm it opened up just enough for those really cool rays to come out from behind that barn and behind that farmland it looks so cool with that limited sky so it's interesting how we can pray for opposites sometimes as photographers and as we're looking for the rest of the year Remember, the photographer down the road from you probably wants those clouds that are ruining your night sky shot of Orion. So don't be mad at nature. Just be disappointed that your timing sucked and that it's going against you. And if the aurora shows up, yeah, we want clear skies. No, no, nothing blocking the aurora. Get out there and pay attention to it. So I hope that was an interesting hangout talking about skies. I do want to do a series of just talking about elements of photography with other photographers that we can hit some of the basics again, hit on some of the things that we love, and, you know, just wax romantic about the things about photography that have just turned on that love that we have, that thing that keeps us doing this crazy stuff and why we get out there with our camera. So have a great week. Friday's over. Get home, hang out with your family. Enjoy whatever version of a week off that you'll get next week and whatever version of a Thanksgiving that you might have for those of you in America and those of you anywhere else. Enjoy your time. Stay safe and get out there. Have an adventure if you can. Later. <laughs>